I'm the editor of Royals Review, Max Reaper. Joining me as usual, back from his week off, is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how did you enjoy your week away from the podcast? Um, it was good. It was good. I mean, you know, a man can only keep his sanity for so long, and doing these podcasts with these rant, with all these just wackos I've got to do the podcast <laughs> with, just, you know, help me help me refresh. So I'm happy to be back. That should be Even our tagline, you know, you know, keep your sanity by listening to Royals Review Radio, yeah. and you know, with the wackos. Uh, joining me also, joining me as uh, one of the wackos, Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how was your Thanksgiving? That was pretty good. Uh, spent it with my family in Iowa, where... Um, when I lived in Iowa for one year after graduating college, I was not used to the um, plurality of, of sports fandom um, associations, right? Here in Kansas City, everyone's a Royals fan, everyone's a Chiefs fan. In Iowa, who knows? You never know. So that's always fun. Yeah, everyone was uh, warning about uh, talking politics with family at Thanksgiving, but I think what people forget sometimes is that some families are divided on sports as well, and, and that can be a dicey situation if you have rivals. Uh, but but hopefully yours was a, a peaceful Thanksgiving uh, without any kind of spats. Uh, you know, our Hokaius this week uh, wrote about things Royals fans should be, th- should be thankful about, uh, even though we've had a couple down years. Certainly uh, there are still a few things we should be thankful for, one of them might be that we have new ownership. Uh, no knock on David Glass. I mean, for all his faults, he did bring a championship. But the Royals do will have some new blood in the owner's booth with John Sherman officially being approved as the, the new owner of the Royals. He purchased the team for $1 billion this summer. Uh, the other Major League Baseball owners had to ratify it this week, and they did. And the Royals introduced John Sherman with a press conference last week. In that press conference, he talked about having a sustainable winner, he also talked a lot about the ownership group, which we learned more about. There are 20-some individuals, most of them with a local tie, people like uh, actor Eric Stone Street from ABC's Modern Family. You also have uh, J.E. Dunn, a large construction firm in town, which uh, has some a plot of land on the East Village, which led a lot of people to believe that perhaps the team is going to be open to moving downtown eventually. Also involved Mariner Kemper, who is involved uh, with many uh, one of the more uh, famous families in town. Uh, and then Paul Edgerly, who's a, a co-owner of the Boston Celtics, also has some local ties as a graduate of Kansas State. So, Matthew, what was kind of your impression of John Sherman? It's kind of the first time we've really heard him speak at length about purchasing the team. Uh, didn't, you know, he gave a little bit of an idea of what he wants to do with this club, but but uh, what was kind of your impression from, from what he had to say? Yeah, I think one of my main, my main impressions was that, you know, he clearly wanted this um, you know, he had, uh, for those of you who didn't know, he was a minority owner in the Indians. Um, and uh, news broke um, around the time of the press conference, I think before, that uh, he had a plan to basically um, consolidate and become the primary owner of the Cleveland Indians. Um, and so he already had connections there, professional connections. He had, you know, relationships with, with people he had knowledge of the club um, and a plan in place to become an owner. Um, so it wasn't that he had an option of the Royals being a run owner of the Royals and not being an owner. He had an option to stay where he was and became a, uh, you know, an owner and he turned it down, uh, divested his stake and chose Kansas city. And to me that, that, um, that sort of speaks to his, you know, uh, his desire to, um, be in the position that he is. It's not just another thing for him, you know, not just another shiny toy or, you know, another thing to make him money. Um, I do think that he'll operate it like most owners 
in that you know it is an investment, and therefore he's not looking to lose a whole bunch of money. You know, um, so he he will manage it like all the other owners do, which is like you know like a business more or less. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, from what he said. Um, it's pretty clear that he wants to be the owner um, and is is looking to use the Royals as a sort of like a civic resource almost. Um, and that's really stuff you want to hear from your owner, right? You know, the Royals are going to be um, in a similar spot that they were with David Glass in regards to payroll, right? They're not going to be suddenly spending $300 million a year on, on payroll. That's just not how it works out financially, but... Um, you know, those are all the right things when you look at one of the other recent ownership changes, the Miami Marlins, you know, Derek Jeter and his group walked in and basically sold everything for parts, um, and got rid of the beautiful, um, home run (laughs) thing like psychopaths. Um, but you know, he he just like walched in, tore everything down and you know, that, 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 that's not a good look. Um, but John Sherman so far, I said all the, all the right things that he could possibly say. And even some that, you know, he said that didn't need to be said. So it's positive, but we also really have no idea what it's going to be like, which is going to be both fascinating and potentially at times frustrating, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, he did make it pretty evident that he is a baseball fan uh, and not just a fan. You know, David Glass was a fan of, uh, you know, as well, but he grew up kind of a Cardinals fan and, and kind of grew into being a Royals fan. Uh, Sherman, who I, I didn't know this, but Sherman, I guess, was born in Japan and actually moved around a lot as a kid, was a little bit of a Dodgers fan, a little bit of a, a Washington Senators fan. But then when he moved to Kansas City as a young man in the 70s, uh, the Royals were obviously one of the best teams in baseball, and he became a real big Royals fan. And, of course, now he's a season ticket holder. Uh, and, and, you know, you can tell he's a really big baseball fan and a Royals fan. And I think you're right. He he does see this as, as more of a civic asset. Uh, I think he's mentioned that before. He's uh, he sees this as a as a, as a like a fan does like a team that uh, you want to see win and you don't care necessarily um, about the balance sheet. Now, like you said, and I think you had a really good article to this effect. At the end of the day, he's still a businessman. This is still a business. He's not going to spend, uh, you know, go into his pocket, you know, millions and millions of dollars, uh, even if even knowing that, you know, the, that there's a payout once he sells a club like David Glass just got. Uh, it's you know very rarely do we see that kind of uh, an owner operate like that. Even Ewing Kaufman, uh, you know, people point to oh yeah he spent money on free agents towards the end yeah, but he was pretty thrifty in the years leading up to that for a long time, uh, always having feuds with George Brett and Frank White and Willie Wilson over salaries. Um, so you know he is a businessman I think first and foremost. So we should expect that. And, and you know Sean, you know you kind of come from a finance background. I guess what kind of interested me. In that is that they had so many investors in this group. They had, there's 20 plus investors. A lot of people from a finance background. You have someone from Goldman Sachs. Uh, a lot of other uh, you know l- large financiers. And what struck me, I guess, is like uh, you know, so John Sherman is obviously a very wealthy man, much wealthier than I'll ever be. I don't think he's a billionaire. I, you know, he's, he didn't. He wasn't able to like buy this team outright with with a billion dollars in cash. And not that mo- most people do. And most of the time, I think you get some financing with these kind of deals. Um, you know, most likely cashed out his equity in the Indians, used some of that or all of that, or maybe that and a little bit more to, to purchase um, a part of the Royals. Uh, I think Jeffrey Flanagan uh, of the of the MLB.com reported that he does not even own 50% yet, although it is a substantial majority or substantial portion compared to what everyone else owns. And so my guess is that he's basically brought in all these investors 
at this point and is going to buy them out over time. So Matthew brings up the, the, the part about the Miami Marlins, and they've kind of run things on the cheap because they, they took on a lot of debt when they purchased the Marlins. Should we be a little concerned about Sherman maybe running this team a little bit, um, let's say, in a frugal manner in order to maybe buy out investors or maybe pay down some debt that he may have taken on? Uh, you know, is, is, is this going to be a team that kind of is lean and mean with pay- payroll for a while? Yeah, isn't that what the Padres had to do? I, I thought I remember the Padres having yeah, a ton they, of debt. Yeah, they had mentioned that, yeah. It was something ridiculous. Some ridiculous amount of year they were paying um, an interest just to, whatever, to pay down their debt. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, we talk about a really curious thing that I didn't see brought up, and I'm fully, I'm I'm fully willing to concede that maybe this isn't even around anymore. But you and I wrote a piece. Maybe God, it feels like it was four years ago, but it wasn't. We talked about when an owner took over a new team, he could deduct the entire amount of salary or you know payroll mm-hmm. as uh, depreciation uh, immediately. Um, I don't know if that's if that rule even still exists or if Sherman's going to take advantage of it, uh, but. Yeah, I, I mean, he just outlaid, uh, you know, essentially either with current liquid money or, you know, future money that he's going to owe to someone. He just laid out a bunch of it to buy the team. I, unless someone like Mike Bloomberg or something buys a team who, you know, just has billions upon billions and it's not an issue. I can't see him all of a sudden, you know, it, it's like if you bought a house and you bought a car and then you really stretched your net worth, then you're like, oh, now I've got to go shell out, you know, thousands of dollars a month for this or that. So I would really see them running mostly lean, at least to begin with. Um, he'll be able to pay himself back, you know, over time, obviously. And, you know, 10, 15 years from now, he's not going to lose money. We're, we're, we're a well, we're, oh God, we are well aware of valuations in baseball going up. So I don't know if I, I would expect it to be, um, definitely a little thinner. I, you know, I don't think that they're going to be signing 70, 80, $100 million deals. Um, but I do think that a new owner wants to come in and be a bit op- opportunistic and um, have goodwill with the fans. I mean, we saw we saw with the Marlins when, you know, Jeter and Co. came in and then just kind of got rid of everybody. Um, and the backlash they saw from that. So I don't think that it's going to be a complete desert when it comes to spending. Um, but, you know, it's really tough for him to be like, oh, hey, I just, you know, effectively paid a billion or 500 million, whatever he ended up paying on his proceeds um, or his portion. It's tough to see him do that than being like, oh, oh, now you want me to spend another 100 million in future obligations? Uh, let's slow down. You know, I think it's been kind of the MO when there's a new ownership group that they do kind of kind of take things slow with payroll. I mean, you know, certainly Jim Crane, when he purchased the Astros, I mean, they pretty much sold everything, you know, traded away any player that was making a decent amount of money. And, and, you know, part of that was part of the rebuild plan, but I think some of that was just because they wanted to kind of keep payroll low for a while because he just purchased the team. Uh, certainly with the, the Ricketts family, when they purchased the Cubs, kind of the same thing, the Marlins and Padres, as we talked about. Uh, so I do think that's kind of a trend around baseball. When you first buy a team, yeah, you're a little light on cash at that point. And so, uh, you know, you're not necessarily going to go out and make a splash with free agents. And, you know, also the Royals are at a point you know, where it really doesn't make a lot of sense to go out and sign, a, you know, a bunch of mid-tier free agents. They're not, you know, they're not going to get Garrett Cole anyway. So going out and spending money on, like, you know, I don't know, Tanner Roark or uh, some, you know, middling free agent that, you know, really isn't going to move the needle on this club probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So 
you know, and he talked about that. He said, we have some payroll flexibility. We have some guys coming up. Uh, he seemed to kind of say we're in a good spot in that situation. So, you know, I wouldn't expect him to spend a whole lot of money either. Um, I think the real test will be, okay, when this team gets to be in a position where they are, you know, ready to take that next step where a guy, a middling free agent would actually make a difference. Will he open up the pocketbook then? And I, I'm a little optimistic that uh, at that point, there will be the, the ownership group will be in a better situation and uh, they'll be in a situation where they can kind of spend some money. But we'll have to yeah, see. And I thought that the ownership, the structure of the ownership, as far as all the different investors, I think that's fairly neat, um, particularly with how many of them were local. Um, I will say that that I am a little bit mad that my the owner of my company um, didn't who's fairly wealthy. I, I, I'm mad that he didn't invest in <laughs> Parlor Oils, our our rival, which is like literally a block away from us. Um, you could see them from our window. They invested part of it. I, you don't know how much, but anyways, it struck me deep to my core that our rival did it, not us. But yeah. all those employees will be getting uh, you know free Royals tickets now. <laughs> Uh, you know, is there concern at all that there's so many investors? I know that, uh, you know, when the Royals were up for uh, sale 20 years ago, uh, Miles Prentice, the, I believe, New York lawyer, uh, wanted to buy the team. And he, he put up the highest bid, but he was rejected because they said, you have too many investors. And he had about 40 investors in his group. Uh, this is half that. Uh, I think there also was probably a, a uh, preference to have a local ownership group. Uh, but I don't know. Is that... Does that strike you as something that uh, I mean, should be concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I see it two ways. You definitely you, you want you want is if I'm an investor and I'm going to go buy anything, if I can get someone else to share that burden with me, great. If I can get ten other people to share that burden with me, <laughs> great. Um, obviously, that dilutes how much ownership I have. But if I'm still the majority owner, say even own forty percent, um, or well, obviously fifty one percent. But say I own. Uh, most of it in some capacity um, that where it would take a lot of people to be against me to override the amount that I have, even if I don't own 51%, even if I own 40%, I still would need at least 41% of other ownership to be against me. So it's kind of nice that you have that, uh, that ability to kind of spread your risk out. And then two, MLB has to do due diligence on every single owner. Um, so if you've got 40 of them, I think that's a little unruly. The Oppenheimer group, there are a lot of them, if I recall right, um, obviously Magic Johnson is kind of the face of that, just like Jeter's the face of the Marlins, but they both represent fairly small ownership. But the Oppenheimer group, I think, had a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to say some of them had some issues getting vetted too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I could see that where they wanted somebody local. And, I mean, there's a lot, and everybody mostly is local. And, you know, they have – I forget what the rule is, but there is a rule where they can only take on X – I want to say it's 130%. This might be wrong, but I think that they can only take over like 130% uh, in debt to buy a team. Right. So MLB's put some structures and cap on that to make it easier for them to is buy that, the Is team. that the so, Frank McCourt rule because uh, the Dodgers, former yep. Dodgers owner, just pretty much used debt yeah. to, to buy that the entire been. Dodgers team? Yeah, so I mean I can live – so I think the ownership – I think it's fine. And you know, Eric Stone Street's only in it. I, I would be surprised if he owned – if they bought it for a billion, I'd be surprised if he owned even three, four million dollars mm-hmm. – or excuse me, um, you know, effectively three percent, um, if even that much um, because 
I, I, I don't know. It, 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 he's one of those guys that's also kind of a cool name to have, and I'm sure he didn't put much in, you know, and he just has the honor, and they've got a face of the franchise in a way that's a local guy. So um, I, I think it's I think it's actually cool how they brought in a whole bunch of local folks overall. Now, there might be some conflict of interest, and I think you might have talked about this um, previously, not tonight, but in another time, uh, with J.E. Dunn. If they were to want to build a new stadium, obviously J.E. Dunn is going to want to be in that construction. But as an owner of a company, it looks a little shady. But obviously there's ways around that um, if they're you know completely independent about it. But and I, I do think that the ownership structure is interesting, even with J.E. Dunn being in there. Yeah, and just to touch upon that real quick, like they their headquarters is in the East Village um, on the east side of the Loop. And that's pretty much been – that's their primary, I believe, target – I talked to Kevin Collison a few weeks ago uh, from the KCD scene, and he said that's yeah that's pretty much the primary target for you know people that are boosting downtown baseball of where a baseball stadium would sit. So even if they don't get the construction contract, I mean their land value is going to go up quite a bit uh, just from having that stadium nearby. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting how they deal with that conflict of interest. I know they did work on the stadium renovations, so um, obviously they have the experience of working on stadiums. Uh, how they work that out, we'll have to see. Uh, Matthew, was there anything we learned about the future of Dayton Moore? Because uh, we, you know, there was a report, I believe, from Bob Nightingale that said, you know, oh yeah, they're they're going to sign a long term deal here pretty soon. But um, I think Jeffrey Flanagan um, refuted those reports recently and said, no, they're they they get along well, but there's no there's no long term deal. Um, did we learn anything about Dayton Moore uh, and his his? Uh, his tenure in Kansas City and whether or not he'll stick around for the uh, the John Sherman years. Uh, I don't think we learned much. Um, I think it's safe to say that uh, Date Moore has uh, much less rope, um, you know, than uh, he did with David Glass um, and with the Glass family. I just think that you know he built all that goodwill up with them, but John Sherman is a new guy and it's a new ownership group, and they have expectations and they don't have that personal connection and that you know. Um, you know, Dayton Moore didn't win a World Series for them. So um, if there comes to a point where it's just not working or if the, this rebuild doesn't work out in the next couple of years, I think it's much, much more likely that Dayton Moore um, gets gets fired in favor of someone else that they can pick, right? You know, you always want to be able to pick who's in charge um, within reason. You know, you don't want to fire everyone pick your guys immediately but i think the the chances of there being a general manager switch are much higher now than they were three months ago but i don't think we learned anything about whether or not or what what kind of standards that sherman has or what kind of you know expectations he's placing on the club we really don't know all we know is that just like any ownership group change change in the history of business, right? There's a new guy and he's more likely to move on from the old guy if the old guy doesn't do as well. That's that's really all we know. So nothing specific to Sherman. Yeah, he did talk a little bit about building a sustainable winner, which uh, – and I, I think he referenced the Cleveland Indians in his time there a few times, which did kind of lead me to believe that he, he was kind of looking for that model where they're a good team every year, but they're not necessarily going to – push their chips all into the table like the Royals did in, you know, the James with the James tra- Shields trade or, you know, when they signed a bunch of free agents in 2014 and 15. Uh, and it doesn't seem like that's kind of his MO. He, I think he, more, more, you know, wants to do like the Indians model where they tra- they'll trade a guy before he declines or they'll let their free agents walk. Um, and as far as more, 
you know, I, I don't know if I still, I don't know if I see him ever getting fired, but I could see a situation where perhaps they kick him upstairs and say, okay, you're club president now, uh, and you'll work with JJ Piccolo, whoever it is, um, and maybe you know Sherman puts a little bit of a has a little bit of influence there, but um, you know, you know Dayton Moore is maybe influenced in a way, or, or is his his wings are trimmed a little bit, or he's given some sort of mandate of like, hey. You should be doing this, this, and this, and maybe Dayton Moore eventually gets tired of that and says, "Well, I'm just gonna, I'll take it. You know, it's time for me to move on somewhere else." I could see that happening. Uh, we'll have to see. I mean, I, 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 I don't think you want to see an, an owner that's interfering with the baseball man too much, but certainly if he has, you know, things he can offer that he's learned in Cleveland that Dayton Moore and his front office are receptive to, then, then I think that 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 could be a good mesh of talents, and hopefully they'll awesome. hopefully they'll be able to work it out. Yeah, I think it would be. I think if Moore were to leave, I think. I'm, you know, unless he just commits some crime or something like that, I think it would be a, well, we've reached a mutual agreement mm-hmm. to part ways or something. You know what I mean? They're not yeah. going to say, oh yeah, we fired him. I think it would be a gentle kind of letting letting go. I think yeah. I think whatever, however Dayton leaves Kansas City, it'll be like, like an emeritus position. Like oh, he is going to be a special advisor to JJ Piccolo or whoever, uh, and we're gonna, and then after a year after that, he's gonna, you know, leave to join another team or do you know whatever he wants to do next after that but yeah i don't see him necessarily getting fired unceremoniously like a lot of gms do um but uh yeah uh, and hey we've already seen john sherman make his first front front office shakeup. mitch meyer is headed to the front office kicked uh kicked upstairs uh no longer will be the first base coach so john sherman taking moves there uh you know if we we, we won't we probably won't see sherman be make too many big moves this off season. Uh, if the Royals do make a, a, a significant move, it'll probably be involving Whitten Merrifield. Uh, and Lionel you know, Matthew, you wrote an interesting article this week. Uh, you know the, the the rumors around Merrifield and the Chicago Cubs continue to persist. There was another report from I think John Paul Morosi that suggested the Cubs are still interested in him. And so you took a look at what would be a realistic trade proposal. Uh, what do you, what do you when you're looking at the Cubs system? What what do you think the Royals would be interested in? Yeah, so just a couple of notes before before we kick off. I don't think that a Whit Merrifield trade is is likely. I think it's much more likely that they keep him. But I think with a combination of the factors such as we got new ownership group that's talking about sustainability. Um, we've got your second consecutive hundred loss season after trying to avoid that. Um, you've got, um, you know, some looming talent that's going to hit, um, next year, um, starting next year, which you really didn't the last couple of years. There are enough changes. I think that there's maybe, you know, a 25% chance that, that Merrifield gets traded. Um, another factor is that, you know, like, like you said, um, some teams just keep getting connected to wit you know, news keeps breaking that teams are interested continually in Whit Merrifield, despite the Royals, you know, not really looking to trade him. Um, so the piece that I, that I wrote, um, so the, the Chicago Cubs have a couple of upper minors guys who have actually made their major league debut. Um, and I think the Royals are going to be looking at that, um, more so than, top talent overall you know it may be such that they can get a you know really super talented clearly top 100 player but maybe he's in low a i don't think that's what they're looking for you know if they trade whit merrifield it's going to get guys who are there immediately to help them kind of like a wade davis situation you know i don't think more is you know into 
maximizing value, as we saw. Um, he's he's looking, you know, to get certain things out of trades, big league talents, and I think that's probably going to happen if it, Merrifield does get traded. So I suggested a trade for uh, Ian Happ um, and Nico Horner. Uh, Ian Happ um, was a second baseman turned outfielder um, and has kind of had um, a little bit of a, you know, not necessarily a rocky um, start, um, but he has um, kind of, you know, had some growing pains. He's struggled a little bit. Um, But uh, for his career in 315 games, Fangraphs has him at 4.8 wins above replacement. So he's he's been pretty good when he's on the field. Um, and the move to the outfield, I think, is is going to help, um, you know, in the same way that some of the infielders that we've seen with iffy, you know, mechanical skills like Alex Gordon or Hunter Dozier do pretty well in the outfield. You know, I think Ian Happ in the outfield is a good, you know, good candidate. Um, he's hit 12% league average for his career. Um, he's going to be, um, you know, under team control for another four or five years or so. Um, so he's he's one guy. The other guy is more of a prospect, Nico Horn, kind of you know, and and middle infielder type of guy. Um, he skipped Triple um, A and time and didn't play much in Double A last year, so he could fill in. Um, so I think if the Royals get him, he might start at Triple A. Um, he's kind of in the um, Nicky Lopez mold a little bit, um, but he is a little bit better um, of a hitter. He's got a little bit more power. Um, but he, you know, he doesn't have a huge minor league track record, um, unlike N- Nicky Lopez. And like I said, he he skipped AAA last year to help out of the big league club. Um, you know, that's Ian Happ is is the big guy in, in in the deal. I mean, you can maybe look at other other players in that as well. One player that I mentioned in the article um, is a pitcher named uh, Corey Abbott. So Corey Abbott is kind of in the same. Um, realm as the Brady Singer Jackson Coar, you know, maybe a little bit less of a pedigree. Um, but he's just done nothing but pitch really, really well. And he is like Jackson Coar and Brady Singer, um, poised to either repeat double A with an aim to make the big league club or go to triple A and then make the big league club in twenty twenty. So he's another guy. I don't know what you know, if if that's I think that's reasonable, but I don't know if the Royals are, are willing to to pull the trigger on it. Um, so in the so at, at Royals review, the comments in the article were basically that's not enough. We need more for a trade. But um, there was some discussion of this on uh, Bleed Cubby Blue, which is the Chicago Cubs uh, SB Nation blog, and everyone there was saying, "No, that's too much for Merrifield." And <laughs> In my opinion, when half of the fan base is saying no, that's uh, you know that's not enough, and the other half is saying that's too much, that's probably in the right ballpark as far as what they'd get. But the real question is whether or not the Royals should be trading with the Chicago at all. There are other better fits who have ready um, you know pitchers um, who um, are sort of ready to make their debuts, um, and the Cubs don't really have that other than Corey Abbott, and he's not like a super you know, you know, big shiny guy you trade with Merrifield for. So I think the real question is which team is the best fit um, and whether they're, whether or not they're going to be willing to pay the price that the Royals will ask, which is going to be a, going to be a lot. They don't have to trade wit, so they're not going to trade him for just nothing. 
Yeah, it's like the it's the it's the endowment effect just kind of on display where everybody overvalues their own asset. Um, and for what it's worth, there, Matthew Lamar, I put that trade into the baseball trade values trade simulator. Uh, it's baseballtradevalues.com for anybody who has been there. It's a great site. The Royals will be giving up forty five point two in value. They will be getting back forty four point three. So about as good as you can, about as close as you can make it. Um, so. Uh, good call. Uh, I think that's uh, a reasonable trade. Um, yeah. yeah I thought Not that you asked for my opinion. But well, yeah, and I, I agree. I think it was a reasonable trade uh, in that I could see that happening. I, th- I think it's a little light, um, but yeah. but that's not to say that it, you know we see trades like that happen all the time. And I think the Royals are probably asking for a ton. And I think they've kind of trained the fans to ask for a ton. And maybe they should be asking for a ton because they don't necessarily have to trade uh, trade Merrifield. I mean, he's not like an impending free agent. I mean, they, they've got him for the next couple of years at a very reasonable deal. Um, but it's interesting, like, you know, you talk about the, the Cubs fans saying, well, that's too much. Uh, and I think Matthew Trueblood of Baseball Perspectives also tweeted out a similar trade and then, the, uh, you know, his trade proposal between the Royals and Cubs where, um, you know, the, the Cubs gave up some really good prospects. I think he suggested uh, Nico Horner and Braylon Marquez, who's probably their top uh, pitching prospect, a very good prospect as well. And the Cubs fans just jumped all over him and saying, you know, Whit Merrifield's a declining player. And it's like, okay, well, then don't trade for him. I mean, like, if you don't think Whit Merrifield's an upgrade over Nico Horner, that's fine. I mean, you're that's a reasonable take to have, I think. But just don't expect to get Whit Merrifield for nothing then. I mean, you know, it's kind of, the, you know, the different perspectives uh, of the fan base is like, you know, like you say, Sean, like you're always going to overrate your own guy. Uh, you know, Sean, what do you think about the Cubs and the Royals? potentially matching up. It seems like we've heard these rumors for for well over a year. Yeah. And the fact that we don't really hear them about other teams makes me wonder a little bit about how attractive Whit Merrifield really is on the market. Uh, but what's kind of your assessment on, on, on his, his market? Yeah. I mean, now that you, now that you talked a little bit more about it, you're right. Matthew's trade is garbage. I agree hundred percent with what you're saying. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's <laughs> you're right, Max. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, let me just start with Hap. Um, I like Hap. I liked him coming out of Cincinnati. Um, but I don't know. He's kind of lost a little bit of shine. Like, he's definitely the kind of guy I could see the Royals going after. But I do think, actually, maybe it's a little underwhelming. Um, just given, like, his bat has been good. Um, but he's had the strikeout issues. And he's not a particularly, like, great defender necessarily. And he's, I don't know. It's one that I'm split on. As a core piece, that's my main problem. Um, but as you had mentioned, is obviously is Matthew, Matthew Wood as well. I mean, that's the kind of guy that I think more would go after. Um, and, you know, I think part of the thing's holding back a lot of this, and this is the thing we struggle, I think, as Royals fans, is um, we are under the mercy of a GM who clearly sees things differently than most, at least on Royals Review, that is. Um, and, and I think all of us all three of us here typically think alike for the most part um, other than garbage trades. Only one of us <laughs> makes garbage. trades. But uh, I think we mostly are all the same in the sense that we value it. Merrifield as if it, if it comes to trading him, I think we all want the best package possible where the general manager of the Royals doesn't necessarily see it that way. And that's not saying he wants a bad package. He wants a different package than what I think most people would want. Um, so I think that's the issue why we're on call it year two um, or even year two and a half of 
Whit Merrifield, will he or won't he be traded? And if he will, what will we get? Um, You're saying he's, this, willing, to, this, he's willing to sacrifice like upside yes. in favor of MLB readiness. Exactly, yeah. And I think most of us, at least I feel like most people in Royals Review would disagree with that idea. But um, like I said, we live under his mercy. And it's kind of, it's the same thing. And I'm not going to make this political, but it's the same thing as the trade deal. The trade deal we're trying to go going on where it's year two of it almost, where it's like, oh, we're very, very close to making a deal. And then we don't hear anything. So this is kind of the same thing with Merrifield. Every winter, every July, we hear the same thing where it's like, oh, there's teams interested in it. But we're more has made it very, very clear that he wants to be blown away. Um, and, and we know that teams that would be acquiring Merrifield teams that are in competition, they typically don't like to give up currently good MLB prospects or MLB players, um, in order to move a guy, unless there's something that makes sense, like a log jam, like maybe the Dodgers would do it because they have a bunch of outfielders that it's either don't play anybody or, you know, trade, trade them. Um, so, I don't know if something is going to get done. I said I, I think I had a 3% chance of it happening. Um, but if we just keep getting kind of toyed along, I, I think that would just be the status quo. And I'm not necessarily sure there's anything going to be against it. And I say, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of rumors other than the Cubs about Whit Merrifield. But, you know, on, their hand, on the other hand, Dayton Moore, typically when he, when he does a trade, there isn't a lot of smoke before. You know, it usually just comes out of nowhere like, oh, we we pulled we traded for this guy. And, you know, things can change pretty quickly, especially in this kind of offseason. And I think it was like a year ago we were talking about Whit Merrifield getting traded. And I think I made the statement like, oh, you know, the second base free agent market is really solid. And that's going to really hurt, you know, the ability to trade Whit Merrifield. Well, a year later, <laughs> it's not a very good market right now. Uh, I mean, you're looking at the free agents out there right now. It's like Jonathan Scope. <laughs> uh, you got Cesar Hernandez, who just hit the market. Starlin Castro. Brian Dozier, it's pretty slim pickings. I mean, so much so that the Reds signed Mike Moustakas as a second baseman to fill that role for them. That could work to the Royals' favor. I mean, if some team is out there trying to get, um, you know, a second baseman from another team, maybe they're trying to get Jerickson Profar from the A's, for example, and now he's been traded uh, and they missed out on him. Maybe now they turn to Whit Merrifield and say, well, let's let's look, look for Whit Merrifield. Uh, or maybe someone, you know, was like, well, we missed out on this free agent. We can at least upgrade at second base. There's not a lot of free agents out there we can upgrade with, so maybe we turn to Whit Merrifield. So perhaps things could change quickly in a couple of weeks. Uh, but you know, I I think we asked this question in our roundtable. You know, what's the odds of Whit Merrifield getting traded this winter? And we all said pretty much 25% or, or less. Uh, a lot of you said single digits, and I would agree with that. I think the the odds are still pretty low that uh, Whit Merrifield ends up getting traded. But like I said, it, it, things can change pretty quickly. Uh, let's take a break real quick. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about non-tenders. Well, before the winter meetings start, the Royals did some house cleaning with their 40-man roster. Uh, they, as a number of other teams did, uh, had some non-tenders. That means that any arbitration-eligible player must be tendered a contract by December 2nd. Any player that is not tendered a contract under those circumstances becomes a free agent. The Royals non-tendered four players, uh, third baseman Chesler Cuthbert being the most notable of those. They also non-tendered infielders Eric Mejia, Umberto Arteaga, and pitcher Jesse Hahn. Uh, Matthew Cuthbert seemed like kind of a no-brainer. You know, MLB trade rumors, they have kind of a way of estimating how much a player would receive through arbitration, and they had him getting uh, $1.8 million dollars. 
considering that salary, considering he didn't really have a role on this team as a third baseman, um, not too surprising, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, well, let me walk that back a little bit. The Royals kept, um, you know, kept playing Chesler Cuthbert, you know, this year. I, I guess they kind of didn't have much of a choice for some of it uh, because of injuries. But, you know, they, they clearly like him. So I think it was not surprising that they, you know, they non-tendered him a contract. But um, I thought there was at least a possibility that they would have or, you know, we still might hear about them bringing him back. You know, that's that's, that's possibility. Um, but from a pure you know, performance standpoint, um, I've been sort of beating this drum for, for a long time. Um, Chesler Cuthbert's a bad MLB player he just is and he is no longer at the point in his career where you can decide so I mean, it makes total sense to move on from him um and as for the others i thought you know jesse hahn was interesting but again that's a that's a player that you might be able to bring back in the minor league deal so nothing really too surprising for cuthbert or for any of them all those players were kind of fringy players anyways they're not the kind of players who are going to make a big impact on your team so you know just sort of standard operating procedure yeah, it's already been reporting that uh, Arteaga, Mejia, and Han are open to signing minor league deals with the team, which uh, makes sense. I mean, usually the Royals do this as a way of getting guys off the 40-man roster without exposing them to waivers with the agreement that they'll sign a minor league de- deal with the team. Cuthbert, we don't know about so much. Uh, Sean, how you remember the Chesler Cuthbert era in Kansas City? I, 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 I am not even being kidding. I'm not even kidding here. I... I will be happy to never, ever, 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 ever talk about Chester Cuthbert again. I'm so <laughs> tired of talking about him. No offense to anybody in the Royals Review land, but I have said every single piece of information, tweeted every thought I've ever had on Chester Cuthbert over the past four years. <laughs> I'm so tired of talking about him. Uh, I'll, I will I will direct everybody to the tweet I have of his defensive highlights, um, and then that's all I need to say. I just... Oh, I won't remember that Chester Cuthbert era. I'll just think about his defense. I'll think about people wanted us to trade Moustakis so that Cuthbert could play every day. And he's <laughs> so done with Chester Cuthbert. It's, I don't know I'm angry right now, but I just cannot stand this player. So I'm done, I'm done with him. Yeah, it was, it was kind of odd that some people, some fans did kind of see him as like the future. Um, and, and he held his own, I guess, in 2016 when he um, came in and replaced Moustakis when he got hurt. Uh, but his numbers were really under underwhelming. He hit 274, 5 OPS plus, 12 home runs in 128 games. And, and like you said, kind of the the poor defensive skills. I mean, he did. He, he was. I think what was interesting about his defense is that he did make like flashy plays now and then. But his, yeah. you know, his lateral movement, his errant arm. Yes, um, he, you know, he would make the most boneheaded play. Some of the things he would do just. It's as if he had never had played baseball before. But you're right. He would make a good, like, stop to his right and, and kind of, uh, you know, cut off a ball back line. He he would then um, fake twice and then overthrow it, airmail it by 50 feet. Like, it's just like, oh, my God. It was just so frustrating to watch him play. Well, if uh, the Royals, not tender their players, but they were far from the only team to uh, cut loose some players. 56 players and all around baseball were non-tendered around uh, the game, which um, I think struck some people as a little suspicious. Um, some of the players non-tendered were, were fairly notable players. Kevin Pillar, who got MVP votes, has been noted as a uh, really fantastic center fielder for a number of years, had 20 home runs. 
He was let go by the uh, the Giants. Blake Trinan, who had, was an all-star in 2018, 38 saves, 0.78 ERA that year. Uh, he was let go by the A's. Taiwan Walker, the former uh, first-round pick, uh, a couple of really solid seasons with the Mariners and Diamondbacks, but is coming off Tommy John surgery. He was let go. Steven Souza Jr., Kevin Gallisman. A lot of really interesting names, Matthew. Is there anyone out there that kind of stuck out to you uh, as someone the Royals should be interested in? Because this is probably kind of the market they're going to be looking at. Yeah, definitely. On the on the position player front, I think uh, Kevin Pillar, I think it's um, – I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go out on a limb now. I think the Royals are going to pick up Kevin Pillar. I really do. Um, and reason being is he's he's their, you know, their perfect player. Um you know he did he did get some MVP votes. He had a really good 2015, but for his career he's been pretty consistent. He's hit about 14, 15 percent below league average, um, which by the way compared to Billy Hamilton for his career was about 30 plus percent below league average. So it's two really pretty different players from an offensive standpoint. Um, and then he's you know he's had he's had good defense. The reason why his 2019 you know, fell off a little bit is because he wasn't as good defensively. Um, but he's still, he's, he's still a good, you know, good enough player to, to put out there. And I, you know, I think he's probably better than Bubba Starling almost assuredly. Um, and depending on how, uh, you know, Brett Phillips hits, he's potentially better than Brett Phillips too. Um, he's been worth at least uh, one and a half wins above replacement every single year for the past five years so since he became a everyday player he's been at least one and a half um and at least two for his the first four years that he was a everyday player so i think he is somebody that the royals um should um probably take a look at um another guy is kevin gaussman who was the fourth overall pick in the 2012 draft um and he's a guy who has you know sort of the physical skills um and and pitch um, pitches that you uh, you would expect from a top four player, and you know for his career he's been uh, he's been he's been pretty good. You know, not not super awesome. He hasn't been a star, but he's been pretty good. Um, you know, he was worth uh, over three wins above replacement per FanGraphs as recently as 2016, um, and he had like really crazy strikeout rates. Um, as a reliever when the Reds um, traded for him um, in 2019. Um, and he is the type of like high talent guy that you want that the Royals should probably be looking at to plug into their, um, you know, into their team and try to flip them at the deadline. If we're being perfectly honest, uh, that plus Kevin Pillar. Um, so I think the two Kevins are, um, are probably the names that, that stood out to me the most. Yeah, I think what's attractive about the non-tender market, I mean, obviously there's the players that are, were not good enough to, to stay on their teams, but, um, you know, what is attractive about them is that they, they tend to be younger than the general free agent market because these are players that are still in their arbitration years. And also, if you do sign them, in some cases, you can have them for under club control for a couple of seasons rather than just one. Um, but Sean, is there is there anyone out there, a rebuilding team like the Royals, should be interested in? Yeah, I had a couple. Um, Matt mentioned uh, Gossman. Let me take them off my list. Um, I'll just do a little rapid fire. Um, Blake Trinan from the Ace um, was a really good reliever recently. Um, I was actually surprised that they non-tendered him. It would be a very, very easy pickup. Aaron Sanchez was good with the Blue Jays for those few years, kind of fallen apart a little bit since, but again, would be another guy that you could just put in the bullpen or even bring him to spring training. I mean, 
I believe he's, he is out for the first month or two of the season. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yep, yep, yep that's right. Uh, and I was thinking of some of these guys in the sense that you have basically going into spring. You have two You have two options, I guess three, but you have three options for a roster spot. It could be a free agent signing, a Rule 5 guy, or a guy you already have in your minors. It doesn't seem like guy in the minors is going to be a hurdle right now, at least in the spring training. So it's, you know, free agents who are non-tenders, we'll call them, and then Rule 5 guys. Is there going to be somebody in the Rule 5 draft better than Aaron Sanchez? I really would doubt it. Um, so that's a guy, and this goes for everybody I'm, I'm thinking of here, but uh, Aaron Sanchez, I think, is, like I said, better than anybody can get in a Rule 5 draft, was good with the Blue Jays. Um, Trevor Hildenberger uh, for the Twins, another reliever. He, for a little bit, was basically um, Scott Alexander, the good Scott Alexander, uh, getting, I think he had a 60% ground ball rate at one point. So I really like him. Ty Walker, I think he was the number five overall prospect in baseball, very, very highly, top 10. Uh, obviously came up with the Mariners, got traded the Mariners to the, to the D-backs. Um, I, I like him. He's been injured um, and hasn't quite lived up his name, but he's another kind of post-type guy. Um, if the Royals trade Merrifield, Travis Shaw could make sense. He was a really surprised DFA can- or not in our candidate. He just had, God, was it a four-win season or a three-and-a-half-win season? Uh, two years ago with the Brewers was really bad in 2019. Um, but that's a guy that you could plug in to second base and, you know, hopefully do the same thing. Trade Merrifield, Shaw rebounds, you trade him. Um, Danny Holton, another kind of post-type guy, very, very low on my priority, but just a guy kind of that's out there. Um, and then Jimmy Nelson was non-tenured as well by the Brewers. Um, he had some arm injuries this year, but he was good. I think five wins, I want to say, uh, with the Brewers in 2018. Um, so another guy, and then sorry, one last one. I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. I think it's Wai Chi Huang or Kwang um, with the Rangers. 25 year old has a really, really dang good changeup. Just kind of okay for London's fastball, but um, very, very impressive numbers in the minors. Um, strikeout rates, uh, swinging strike rates, all just phenomenal. Even had a 0.180 RA um, in his obviously very limited time, five innings um, in the majors this year, but he's 26 and uh, projects to be decent and uh, just kind of a guy that I, I kind of always have liked a little bit. So I believe he was dealt at one time for Jake Diekman as well. So yep, exactly. uh, yeah, I, I, there's some interesting names out there. I, I think Gaussman, Aaron Sanchez, Blake Trinan, probably the cream of the crop. I would expect those guys to probably get a fair amount of uh, – uh, interest from clubs. I know the Yankees are already in, interested in Blake Trinan. Uh, so I think the Royals will probably have to look at maybe the next level guys. Um, but I think when you're look, talking about the Royals, you, you, number one, I think you, you're looking for guys preferably 30 years old or younger because you want kind of guys that are at least in their prime. Uh, I think you're looking for guys that ideally would have more than one year of club control left. Um, you know, Ideally, I think you would look for guys that are just kind of starting out their major league career um, that could, you could have for a couple of years, but if not, maybe someone you could flip. Uh, I think so. I think flippable guys. I think Jimmy Nelson and Taiwan Walker make a lot of sense, just because they have a fair amount of upside. I think both have been three win pitchers in the recent past. Uh, both have pretty good pedigree. Both are top one hundred prospects. Walker was a first round pick. I think you know with Walker, it's just a matter of health. I mean, he came, he's bouncing back from Tommy John surgery. If he can show that he's, you know, what he was before, then he's going to be a very valuable pitcher. 
uh, that the Royals could probably trade in July. I believe he's a free agent at the end of the year, so uh, some team could get him for like their stretch run, and he could be a very good pitcher for them, and the Royals could get a couple good prospects. Uh, Jimmy Nelson probably, I, don't, I wouldn't say his upside is quite as high, but he's a, he's a solid kind of number four type starter where uh, perhaps, you know, if he's bad, and he had some injury problems last year, uh, the last two years as well, but if he can kind of become what he was before with the Brewers, then he can be a solid, you know, solid starting pitcher that the Royals can get maybe a, a nice prospect from as well. Uh, so I think those guys make some sense. And as far as like your guys that have a lot of club control, um, I kind of like Ian Jabot, who um, was a reliever in the Rays yeah. organization. They actually designated him for assignment uh, in the summertime because of a roster crunch. The Rangers League debut, he wasn't great, uh, but he did strike. He did miss a lot of bats, and he kind of has that that mid nineties fastball that where he has trouble throwing it for strikes. But he does have the velocity. He has the ability to miss bats. He you know he has a lot of service time left. So if you and he's twenty five, so he's on the young side. So if you pick him up and he's a solid reliever for you, um, then you've got a guy for the next five six years. Uh, who can be either be part of your next good Royals team or another guy you can flip. Uh, and guys, you know, with lots of controllable years are obviously a lot more valuable. So I think that's a guy maybe worth taking a gamble on, especially with the state of the bullpen and the depth that we have right now. Uh, Yimmy Garcia is another guy. I was kind of surprised the Dodgers let him go. He's a 28-year-old right-hander, just a fastball slider guy, but another guy that can miss bats. Uh, and it put a pretty good numbers last year for the Dodgers, like I said. So it's kind of surprising they let him go. So... You know, with the Royals, maybe you know, he could be one of their, you know, number two or number three best reliever, uh, and they can give uh, give them a, a few more options and a guy that will actually be here for a couple of years. So, uh, those are a couple of interesting names. I think a lot. I think uh, you know, Matthew, more than a few people I saw on Twitter kind of made the connection between the Royals and Kevin Pillar. I think David Lesky actually um, kind of insinuated that as well. That would not surprise me at all. Um, I, I guess for me, I, I think I'd. I'm not a big Bubba Starling fan, but I I kind of almost rather see Starling out there than Pilar. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe that that ship should sail at this point. Um, so you know, Pilar, I think you're right. Does make a lot of sense for the Royals as far as you know the the great defender. He he doesn't strike out much. I know they they really stressed putting the ball in play, and he's a guy that can do that a little bit better than um, like say a Billy Hamilton. Um, so yeah, I think he's. I, I made kind of a, an illusion that he's similar to Hamilton in that he's a fast great defender low on base percentage but you're right he's he's clearly of a of a next uh tier of offensive player uh above hamilton so uh he wouldn't be quite quite the zero at the plate as hamilton so i can see that making some sense on like a you know like a one-year i don't know six to eight million six to eight million dollar deal um where the royals just kind of like say okay we need you to play center field although you know what would they do with Whit Merrifield at that point? I don't know. Like they'd have to move him to right, or, or maybe they put him at second, or trade him, or whatever. But uh, we'll have to see what the Royals do. But there, I think there are it's there is some talent out there the Royals could benefit from, and uh, hopefully they will at least peruse the non-tender list and see if there's anyone out there that can help them. Uh, the non the the winter meetings will be next week. Uh, we'll be back then with a with another pod to see. Uh, what the Royals are doing and, and see if the, you know, they're, uh, we'll kind of preview the Rule 5 draft a little bit. But, Matthew, real quick, what are you kind of looking for uh, from the Royals from the winter meetings and maybe what's something you expect to see around baseball? You know, um, I'm not sure we'll see much from the Royals uh, at the winter meetings um, other than I do think they'll be someone active in the Rule 5 draft. You know, that's where they got, um, you know, Brad Keller. Um, he's their best starter. Um, so, uh, with um, the amount of spots they've got open on the 40 man and with the amount of basically disposable players that they've got, you know, fringe, so many fringe guys, 
Um, I think that they could definitely make a splash in that if they found a couple of pitchers that they liked, or even, you know, maybe a utility guy liked. Um, you know, they did on tender Arteaga and, and Mejia. They contendered them both, right? Yes. Yeah, so so neither of them are going to be on, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have to add those guys to the plan. Um, so they're, they're going to need a utility guy of some variety. Um, so I think that is a possibility as well. Uh, a couple of pitchers or... Uh, utility guy or all of the above. Not um, a believer in Matt Reynolds, are we? <laughs> signed to a minor league deal a few weeks ago. Did look, I, I forgot the Royals even signed him. Yeah, that's, they didn't make many headlines. I think it was. Um, Who? The yeah, Matt Reynolds. Yeah, Not to be confused with Mark Reynolds. <laughs> so that's one of the things that they'll do. I don't really think that they're going to do much of anything else. Um, if we're lucky, we'll see a Whit Merrifield trade. I think that's their best way forward. But like we've already covered, that's probably not going to happen. Um, what we'll see around baseball is um, I think we'll probably see big move at the winter meetings. I don't know what it is, but I feel like uh, for whatever reason, the free agent market this year is moving a lot quicker. Um, so uh, Mike Moustaka signed a four-year, $64 million deal, which, you know, really good for him. But in the last two years, the same player was was on the market. He didn't get that deal at all. Um, and there's been a little bit more movement in the free agent market so far, for whatever reason. So I think that's that probably is is a good sign for activity level going forward. You know, it seems a little looser. Um, so I hope we'll see some some big deals, some interesting deals that we can all talk about. Um, one of the things that I do miss about well not really miss but one of the things that i wish that baseball did is be more like the nba or the nfl like when the free agent like banner drops like people are signing like crazy people are getting traded all over the place and the baseball offseason is is not very fast so i i am hoping at least that there's a big signing or a big trade or something that we can talk about that we can you know get some oh holy crap this thing's happening kind of moment in baseball which doesn't happen a lot i feel yeah, Rob Manfred, quit concentrating on the pace of play in the game and concentrate on the pace of play in the offseason. Yeah. Get some moves going here. Uh, you're right. I think it, it is starting to th- – the, the, the glacial pace of transaction has thawed a little bit. I don't know if it's players, like, jumping on the first good contract they're getting, the contract offer they're getting, uh, or teams are actually getting better deals. Now, I suspect it's a latter because, like you said, Moustakas wasn't getting these deals at all last offseason. Uh and I think there's some more teams, like some of the teams that were tanking last year, they're not tanking this year. Like the White Sox, I think, are, are really trying to win now, and the Reds are really trying to make a push, and the Twins are probably going to want to capitalize on success. So hopefully we'll, we will see a little more action this, this year out of baseball. Uh, Sean, what's going to be the big headline next week at Royals Review from what the Royals have done at the winter meetings? Um, renamed the team. The Shermanators. Uh, I have no idea. Um, I, yeah, I think, I think it's um is a, probably a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably a pretty sleepy week there, uh, just because they've always been fairly quiet. Although, did Wade Davis get traded? He got traded in December, right? I don't. Yeah, I think it was, it was a later trade in the off season. Okay, it really was. Wow, I thought it was like December or something. Oh wait, oh, you're right. it's December sixth. You're right. So that would have been probably around the time of the winter meetings. Okay, uh, I think Will Myers was December too, but that, um, anyways, I, I was thinking typically the Royals are quiet in December, but maybe that's not the case. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't see much coming out of the the winter meetings. 
I think the Royals probably focused on the Rule 5 and then kind of go from there. Uh, so I'm not sure if we've got anything. Maybe, I don't know, maybe John Sherman will sell the team and we'll have a new one to talk about in a week, but that's about it. That's all I can think of. Maybe the Royals will be the mystery team that uh, John Hammond talks so much about when he talks about the bidders on the made free agent. So, yeah, I'm not – no one's ruled out the Royals pursuing Garrett Cole. So unless yeah, – until they true. get ruled out, um, I, I'll consider them a, a suitor. Uh, well, that's kind of kind of do it for the baseball talk. Uh, we've been trying to end these uh, podcasts with just a, a little uh, something from our guests. Uh, a couple minutes that we want to share, like the latest TV show they've been watching, uh, an article they've they've noticed, or so, just something they want to talk about. Well, I think last week we called it Royals Review Rants, but uh, I don't want to. That sounds angry. I about so I don't know, like Royals Review Reviews, like we reviewed something. I don't know. We'll come up with a good name. Uh, Matthew, what have you got for us this week? All right, so this is uh, something that I have really thought for a long time, um, but have been become emboldened maybe because of Twitter being so obsessed with controversial opinions lately. Um, my uh, sort of rant slash review um, is to try to convince everyone that whole bird turkeys are not good. It's not good food. Nobody eats them throughout the year for a reason. It's because it's dry, bad chicken. And it's just just get ham, okay? Ham is better. Um, ham is good all the time. I understand that probably some uh, trepidation because ham is that's fine. Ham is ham is, is also great. Thanksgiving, you know, centerpiece. Paying amounts of this is not very good, and that is not to do with any of the cooks that I had. And I keep hearing, oh, you just need to have the right turkey. No, man, turkeys. It's it's not it's not good. Like it's it's not great. Everybody loves Thanksgiving because of the sides. No one's like, oh, man, turkey. <laughs> you know, everyone wants the mashed potatoes or the mac and cheese or the gravy or whatever. It's never the turkey because turkey isn't good. And just have ham. That's that's my rant. Okay, Matthew, you are, you are officially invited to the Reaper family house for Thanksgiving next Dang. year. Because uh, my mom makes the juiciest turkey uh, this side of Kansas City. And uh, I think she'll put your comments to shame. I was going to say ban him. That's, there's no way. <laughs> that's, that's pretty un-American, I think. Yeah. That's a, that's a hot take if I've heard one. Uh, Sean, do you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had cherry pie? Cherry pie sucks. Uh, <laughs> Puppies. Who needs pie, them? Pie. I was thinking, what's a, yeah. you know, the Beatles were terrible. Uh, now, are, Mac, are you familiar, are you familiar with uh, the game Death Stranding? No. Okay, I I've I've heard about it. I haven't played it. I've read a so, lot. So my favorite video game franchise of all time uh, is Metal Gear Solid, and the creator of Metal Gear Solid, his name is Hideo Kojima. He came up with a game. I'm going to describe the game, and I'm being 100 serious. You are you're in the future, um, and a, without giving any kind of plot away, you're in the somewhat immediate term future. Um, basically, everybody not everybody's died. There's communities, and they're all spread apart. You literally, the gameplay is having to, <laughs> your character takes a package from one port. Literally, you have to walk him like across the United States to different ports delivering packages. That's it. That's literally the entire game. You are walking around delivering packages. Uh, now, the game, the game, the actual, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, the graphics are incredible, and 
it's a little bit more than that because there's some go it's death stranding because there's like death the idea of a death stranding is like on a beach there's a bunch of whales that die um they get stranded on the tide pushes them all in so that's kind of what it is there's a bunch of ghosts who are still alive you and they try to kill you effectively um and are stranded uh but anyways so that's the game you're walking across the united states with packages to take to city to city and the idea is you are connecting every city back together again uh, because when you reach one of the ports you bring it back online and so you're basically connecting all of america back together again it is an awesome game i know the gameplay sounds terrible but my review of it is an easy four out of four i'm a little biased because i love hideo kojima um but it is wacky it is insane. The gameplay is perfect. It's exactly what you're expecting. It's it's a phenomenal game. It's available for PS4 and Xbox 360. Anywhere games are sold. Xbox 360. Xbox One, you mean? Xbox every, One. Whatever the hell every review I've ever heard of the game has been the gameplay is an Amazon simulator, as in yes. it's an Amazon employee <laughs> simulator. Uh, the story is weird. The characters don't make sense. You can throw piss grenades. There yes. is It's so bizarre. And I loved it. Like yeah. there's, there's, it's, it's, it's just like, <laughs> it is, it's just crazy. It like there's, there's nothing that is linear about the description of the game. Like this no. is good and this is good and this is good. And therefore I loved it. It's, this is bad. This is weird. I don't know about this. Yeah. And this is my favorite game of the decade. It doesn't make any yeah. sense at all. If you played any of his games, Kojima's games, it is such a Kojima on point game, weird ass dialogue. There's people like one of the guys name is die Hardman. Uh, it's all these really <laughs> weird names, um, and that's all Kojima's ever been. And so it's such an on-brand game for Kojima. And you know one day he he was sitting at home, he got an Amazon package, he goes, I think I can make a game out of that. And there you go. That's exactly what happened. So incredible game. I can't recommend it enough. Um, I don't know about for kids. There's I don't think there's any cussing, but still, great game. Starring uh, Norman Reedus and Mads Mikkelsen. Yep. That's interesting. Yep. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I was going to say that didn't sound like a great description of gameplay, but like the most popular game in the world is like kids digging in the dirt and finding things in the dirt. So, uh, you know, yeah. uh, I, I guess I can see it working. Um, I, I'll stick to, kind of to, I guess, the Japanese theme because I assume he's Japanese. Uh, I've been kind of on a kick of Japanese culture on, on my TV watching. I caught um, Mr. Baseball on MLB Network a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, the 1990s uh, comedy starring Tom Selleck as a washed up baseball player that goes to Japan uh, to play in the Japanese league. And it, it held up pretty well. I thought, I mean, it was kind of your, you know, uh, typical American, you know, as uncouth and, and teaches the Japanese how to loosen up and the Japanese teach them how to work together and have discipline. And, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty good comedy. The baseball scenes are actually really, really good. I think compared to a lot of uh, movies. So uh, definitely if you see that on MLB network, check it out again uh but the other thing we my wife and i've been watching is uh japanese reality shows on netflix uh oh they're wild uh so we, we got into terrace house which is like the real world but it's in japan so in the real world in america you know it's it's six strangers whatever 10 strangers in a house all good looking people between 18 and 30 <clears throat> and um you know usually by the first night they've gotten really drunk they've made a mess of the place <laughs> Someone's gotten a big fight, a fist fight. Um, two people have hooked up and are having sex upstairs. In the Japanese version of this, so it's, it's called Terrace House. It's not related to real world, but it's a very similar concept. Six really good looking people in their 20s uh, live in a house together for like like three months or something like that. And they're extremely polite and they're extremely like nice to each other. And uh, they have, keep a very clean place. 
and they uh, the they they cook these really delicious looking meals for each other. There's like a whole blog dedicated to the food of Terra's house, uh, and it's it, I mean I think a lot of people would find it extremely boring, but for some reason we were just like compelled by like Japanese culture and like like two guys like the same girl and in America of course that would lead to like a fist fight or preening or you know whatever. And here, it's like the younger guy's like, oh, I defer to you. You're my elder, and, like, you know, you really like her. Why don't you take her on a date? And if things don't go well, you know, maybe I'll talk to her. Or I'll help you, you know, I'll help you out. And it's just, it's it's bizarre as an American watching this, uh, just to see young people behave like this, like very polite and deferential and clean and tidy. Uh, it's 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 fascinating to me. And, and just, fa- you know, it's just fun seeing, and I know, Sean, you've been to Tokyo uh, just fun seeing Tokyo and, and Japan, like all the cool things that are that yeah. are there and all the fun things they do. So uh, Terra House on to, Netflix. Never been to Tokyo. Been to Osaka twice, uh, but and it, and then I've been to Tokyo effectively backwards in Kyoto. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's there's in Japan right now. There's a hotel that is one dollar, and the reason the a room is one dollar is because there's a video camera on you, a live video stream <laughs> on you at all times. Um, on YouTube, so you can look at the one dollar hotel in Japan. And uh, anyways, there's people people are doing it. I, I I don't I would never do that, but yeah, there's it's going on. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating culture. There's and this is it gets a lot weirder. I mean, the show is not very weird, but the, certainly their culture gets a lot weirder uh, at times. But um, yeah, it's just I don't know. I'm just completely enthralled by by Terrace House on Netflix. So anyway, that'll do it for us tonight. Uh, you can of course visit our site at royalsreview.com. And follow us on Twitter at Royals Review. Thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on tonight. And thanks to our readers and listeners for giving us a follow. Hey!